Section 19 of The Interpretation of Dreams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Judith Parker. The Interpretation of Dreams by Sigmund Freud. Translated by A. A. Brill. Section 19. The Somatic Sources of Dreams If we attempt to interest a cultured layman in the problems of dreams, and if, with this end in view, we ask him what he believes to be the source of dreams, we shall generally find that he feels quite sure he knows at least this part of the solution. He thinks immediately of the influence exercised on the formation of dreams by a disturbed or impeded digestion. In parentheses, quote, dreams come from the stomach, end quote, in parentheses. An accidental position of the body, a trifling occurrence during sleep. He does not seem to suspect that even after all these factors have been duly considered, something still remains to be explained. In the introductory chapter, we examined at length the opinion of scientific writers on the role of somatic stimuli in the formation of dreams, so that here we need only recall the results of this inquiry. We have seen that three kinds of somatic stimuli will be distinguished. The objective sensory stimuli, which proceed from external objects, the inner states of excitation of the sensory organs, having only a subjective reality, and the bodily stimuli arising within the body. And we have also noticed that the writers on dreams are inclined to thrust into the background any psychic sources of dreams which may operate simultaneously with the somatic stimuli, or to exclude them altogether. In testing the claims made on behalf of these somatic stimuli, we have learned that the significance of the objective excitation of the sensory organs, whether accidental stimuli operating during sleep or such as cannot be excluded from the dormant relation of these dream images and ideas to the internal bodily stimuli and confirmed by experiment that the part played by the subjective sensory stimuli appears to be demonstrated by the recurrence of hypnagogic sensory images in dreams, and that, although the broadly accepted relation of these dream images and ideas to the internal bodily stimuli cannot be exhaustively demonstrated, it is, at all events, confirmed by the well-known influence which an excited state of the digestive, urinary, and sexual organs exercises upon the content of our dreams. Nerve stimulus and bodily stimulus would thus be the anatomical sources of dreams. That is, according to many writers, the sole and exclusive sources of dreams. But we have already considered a number of doubtful points, which seem to question not so much the correctness of the somatic theory as its adequacy. However confident the representatives of this theory may be of its factual basis, especially in respect of the accidental and external nerve stimuli, which may without difficulty be recognized in the dream content, Nevertheless, they have all come near to admitting that the rich content of ideas found in dreams cannot be derived from the external nerve stimuli alone. In this connection, Miss Mary Whitten Calkins tested her own dreams and those of a second person for a period of six weeks and found that the element of external sensory perception was demonstrable in only 13.2% and 6.7% of these dreams, respectively. 
Only two dreams in the whole collection could be referred to organic sensations. These statistics confirm what a cursory survey of our own experience would already have led us to suspect. A distinction has often been made between nerve stimulus dreams, which have already been thoroughly investigated, and other forms of dreams. Spitta, for example, divided dreams into nerve stimulus dreams and association dreams. But it was obvious that this solution remained unsatisfactory unless the link between the somatic sources of dreams and their ideational content could be indicated. In addition to the first objection, that of the insufficient frequency of the external sources of stimulus, a second objection presents itself, namely the inadequacy of the explanations of dreams afforded by this category of dream sources. There are two things which the representatives of this theory have failed to explain. Firstly, why the true nature of the external stimulus is not recognized in the dream, but is constantly mistaken for something else. And secondly, why the result of the reaction of the perceiving mind to this misconceived stimulus should be so indeterminate and variable. We have seen that Strumpel, in answer to these questions, asserts that the mind, since it turns away from the outer world during sleep, is not in a position to give the correct interpretation of the objective sensory stimulus, but is forced to construct illusions on the basis of the indefinite stimulation arriving from many directions. Quote, when by an external or internal nerve stimulus during sleep, a feeling or a complex of feelings or any sort of psychic process arises in the mind and is perceived by the mind, this process calls up from the mind perceptual images belonging to the sphere of the waking experiences. That is to say, earlier perceptions, either unembellished or with psychic values appertaining to them. It collects about itself, as it were, a greater or lesser number of such images, from which the impression resulting from the nerve stimulus receives its psychic value. In this connection, it is commonly said, as in ordinary language, we say of the waking procedure, that the mind interprets in sleep the impressions of nervous stimuli. The result of this interpretation is the so-called nerve stimulus dream, that is, a dream the components of which are conditioned by the fact that a nerve stimulus produces its psychical effect in the life of the mind in accordance with the laws of reproduction, end quote. In all essential points, identical with this doctrine, is Wundt's statement that the concepts of dreams proceed, at all events for the most part, from sensory stimuli, and especially from the stimuli of general sensation, and are therefore mostly fantastic illusions probably only to a small extent pure memory conceptions raised to the condition of hallucination. To illustrate the relation between dream content and dream stimuli, which follows from this theory, Strumpel makes use of an excellent simile. It is, quote, as though ten fingers of a person ignorant of music were to stray over the keyboard of an instrument, end quote. The implication is that the dream is not a psychic phenomenon originating from psychic motives, but the result of a physiological stimulus which expresses itself in psychic symptomatology because the apparatus affected by the stimulus is not capable of any other mode of expression. Upon a similar assumption is based the explanation of obsessions, which Maynard attempted in his famous simile of the dial on which individual figures are most deeply embossed. Popular though this theory 
of the somatic dream stimuli has become, and seductive though it may seem, it is nonetheless easy to detect its weak point. Every somatic dream stimulus which provokes the psychic apparatus in sleep to interpretation by the formation of illusions may evoke an incalculable number of such attempts at interpretation. It may consequently be represented in the dream content by an extraordinary number of different concepts. But the theory of Strumpel and Wundt cannot point to any sort of motive which controls the relation between the external stimulus and the dream concept chosen to interpret it, and therefore it cannot explain the peculiar choice which the stimuli often enough make in the course of their productive activity. Other objections may be raised against the fundamental assumption behind the theory of illusions. The assumption that during sleep the mind is not in a condition to recognize the real nature of the objective sensory stimuli. The old physiologist Burdock shows us that the mind is quite capable, even during sleep, of a correct interpretation of the sensory impressions which reach it and of reacting in accordance with this correct interpretation, inasmuch as he demonstrates that certain sensory impressions which seem important to the individual may be accepted from the general neglect of the sleeping mind, parentheses, as in the example of nurse and child, end parentheses and that one is more surely awakened by one's own name than by an indifferent auditory impression, all of which presupposes, of course, that the mind discriminates between sensations even in sleep. Burdock infers from these observations that we must not assume that the mind is incapable of interpreting sensory stimuli in the sleeping state, but rather that it is not sufficiently interested in them. The arguments which Burdock employed in 1830 reappear unchanged in the works of Lips, in parentheses, in the year 1883, where they are employed for the purpose of attacking the theory of somatic stimuli. According to these arguments, the mind seems to be like the sleeper in the anecdote, who, on being asked, are you asleep, answers no, and on being again addressed with the words, then lend me ten forens, takes refuge in the excuse, I am asleep. Footnote. I would advise everyone to read the exact and detailed records, collected in two volumes, of the dreams experimentally produced by Morley Bold in order to convince himself how little the conditions of the experiments help to explain the content of the individual dream, and how little such experiments help us towards an understanding of the problems of dreams. The inadequacy of the theory of somatic dream stimuli may be further demonstrated in another way. Observation shows that external stimuli do not oblige me to dream, even though these stimuli appear in the dream content as soon as I begin to dream, supposing that I do dream. In response to a touch or pressure stimulus experienced while I am asleep, a variety of reactions are at my disposal. I may overlook it and find on waking that my leg has become uncovered or that I have been lying on an arm. Indeed, pathology offers me a host of examples of powerfully exciting sensory and motor stimuli of different kinds which remain ineffective during sleep. I may perceive the sensation during sleep, and though my sleep, as it were, as constantly happens in the case of pain stimuli, but without weaving the pain into the texture of a dream. And thirdly, I may wake up in response to the stimulus simply in order to avoid it. 
still another fourth reaction is possible, namely that the nerve stimulus may cause me to dream. But the other possible reactions occur quite as frequently as the reaction of dream formation. This, however, would not be the case if the incentive to dreaming did not lie outside the somatic dream sources. End of footnote. Appreciating the importance of the above-mentioned lacunae in the explanation of dreams by somatic stimuli, other writers, Scherner, for example, and following him, the philosopher Volkite, endeavored to determine more precisely the nature of the psychic activities which cause the many-colored images of our dreams to proceed from the somatic stimuli. And in so doing, they approached the problem of the essential nature of dreams as a problem of psychology and regarded dreaming as a psychic activity. Scherner not only gave a poetical, vivid, and glowing description of the psychic peculiarities which unfold themselves in the course of dream formation, but he also believed that he had hit upon the principle of the method the mind employs in dealing with the stimuli which are offered to it. The dream, according to Scherner, in the free activity of the fantasy which has been released from the shackles imposed upon it during the day, strives to represent symbolically the nature of the organ from which the stimulus proceeds. Thus there exists a sort of dream book, a guide to the interpretation of dreams, by means of which bodily sensations, the conditions of the organs, and states of stimulation may be inferred from the dream images. Quote, Thus the image of a cat expressed extreme ill-temper, the image of pale smooth pastry, the nudity of the body. The human body as a whole is pictured by the fantasy of the dream as a house and the individual organs of the body as parts of the house. In toothache dreams, a vaulted vestibule corresponds to the mouth, and a staircase to the descent from the pharynx to the esophagus. In the headache dream, a ceiling covered with disgusting toad-like spiders is chosen to denote the upper part of the head, end quote. Quote, many different symbols are employed by our dreams for the same organ. Thus the breathing lung finds its symbol in a roaring stove filled with flames, the heart in empty boxes and baskets, and the bladder in round bag-shaped or merely hollow objects. It is of particular significance that at the close of the dream, the stimulating organ or its function is often represented without disguise, and usually on the dreamer's own body. Thus, the toothache dream commonly ends by the dreamer drawing a tooth out of his mouth. End quote. It cannot be said that this theory of dream interpretation has found much favor with other writers. It seems, above all, extravagant, and so Scherner's readers have hesitated to give it even the small amount of credit to which it is, in my opinion, entitled. As will be seen, it tends to a revival of dream interpretation by means of symbolism, a method employed by the ancients. Only the province from which the interpretation is to be derived is restricted to the human body. The lack of a scientifically comprehensible technique of interpretation must seriously limit the applicability of Scherner's theory. Arbitrariness in the interpretation of dreams would appear to be by no means excluded, especially since in this case also a stimulus may be expressed in the dream content by several representative symbols. Thus, even Scherner's follower, Volkite, was unable to confirm the representation of the body as a house. 
Another objection is that here again the dream activity is regarded as a useless and aimless activity of the mind, since according to this theory, the mind is content with merely forming fantasies around the stimulus with which it is dealing, without even remotely attempting to abolish the stimulus. Scherner's theory of the symbolization of bodily stimuli by the dream is seriously damaged by yet another objection. These bodily stimuli are present at all times, and it is generally assumed that the mind is more accessible to them during sleep than in the waking state. It is therefore impossible to understand why the mind does not dream continuously all night long, and why it does not dream every night about all the organs. If one attempts to evade this objection by positing the condition that special excitations must proceed from the eye, the ear, the teeth, the bells, etc., in order to arouse the dream activity, one is confronted with the difficulty of proving that this increase of stimulation is objective, and proof is possible only in a very few cases. If the dream of flying is a symbolization of the upward and downward motion of the pulmonary lobes, either this dream, as has already been remarked by Strumpel, should be dreamt much oftener, or it should be possible to show that respiration is more active during this dream. Yet a third alternative is possible, and it is the most probable of all namely that now and again special motives are operative to direct the attention to the visceral sensations which are constantly present. But this would take us far beyond the scope of Scherner's theory. The value of Scherner's and Volkite's disquisitions resides in their calling our attention to a number of characteristics of the dream content which are in need of explanation and which seem to promise fresh discoveries. It is quite true that symbolizations of the bodily organs and functions do occur in dreams. For example, that water in a dream often signifies a desire to urinate, that the male genital organ may be represented by an upright staff or a pillar, etc. With dreams which exhibit a very animated field of vision and brilliant colors, in contrast to the dimness of other dreams, the interpretation that they are, quote, dreams due to visual stimulation, end quote, can hardly be dismissed, nor can we dispute the participation of illusion formation in dreams which contain noise and a medley of voices. A dream like that of Scherner's, that two rows of fair, handsome boys stood facing one another on a bridge, attacking one another and then resuming their positions, until finally the dreamer himself sat down on a bridge and drew a long tooth from his jaw, or a similar dream of Volkite's, in which two rows of drawers played a part, and which again ended in the extraction of a tooth. Dream formations of this kind, of which both writers relate a great number, forbid our dismissing Scherner's theory as an idle invention without seeking the kernel of truth which may be contained in it. We are therefore confronted with the task of finding a different explanation of the supposed symbolization of the alleged dental stimulus. Throughout our consideration of the theory of the somatic sources of dreams, I have refrained from urging the argument which arises from our analyses of dreams. If, by a procedure which has not been followed by other writers in their investigation of dreams, we can prove that the dream possesses intrinsic value as psychic action, that a wish supplies the motive of its formation, and that the experiences of the previous day furnish the most obvious material of its content. Any other theory of dreams which neglects such an important method of investigation 
and accordingly makes the dream appear a useless and enigmatical psychic reaction to somatic stimuli, may be dismissed without special criticism. For in this case there would have to be, and this is highly improbable, two entirely different kinds of dreams, of which only one kind has come under our observation, while the other kind alone has been observed by the earlier investigators. It only remains now to find a place in our theory of dreams for the facts on which the current doctrine of somatic dream stimuli is based. We have already taken the first step in this direction in advancing the thesis that the dream work is under a compulsion to elaborate into a unified whole all the dream stimuli which are simultaneously present. We have seen that when two or more experiences capable of making an impression on the mind have been left over from the previous day, the wishes that result from them are united into one dream. Similarly, that the impressions possessing psychic value and the indifferent experiences of the previous day unite in the dream material, provided that connecting ideas between the two can be established. Thus the dream appears to be a reaction to everything which is simultaneously present as actual in the sleeping mind. As far as we have hitherto analyzed the dream material, we have discovered it to be a collection of psychic remnants and memory traces which we were obliged to credit on account of the preference shown for recent and for infantile material with a character of psychological actuality, though the nature of this actuality was not at the time determinable. We shall now have little difficulty in predicting what will happen when to these actualities of the memory fresh material in the form of sensations is added during sleep. These stimuli, again, are of importance to the dream because they are actual. They are united with the other psychic actualities to provide the material for dream formation. To express it in other words, the stimuli which occur during sleep are elaborated into a wish fulfillment, of which the other components are the psychic remnants of daily experience with which we are already familiar. This combination, however, is not inevitable. We have seen that more than one kind of behavior toward the physical stimuli received during sleep is possible. Where this combination is affected, a conceptual material for the dream content has been found which will represent both kinds of dream sources, the somatic as well as the psychic. The nature of the dream is not altered when somatic material is added to the psychic dream source. It still remains a wish fulfillment, no matter how its expression is determined by the actual material available. I should like to find room here for a number of peculiarities which are able to modify the significance of external stimuli for the dream. I imagine that a cooperation of individual physiological and accidental factors which depend on the circumstances of the moment determines how one will behave in individual cases of more intensive objective stimulation during sleep. Habitual or accidental profundity of sleep in conjunction with the intensity of the stimulus will in one case make it possible so to suppress the stimulus that it will not disturb the sleeper, while in another case it will force the sleeper to wake or will assist the attempt to subdue the stimulus by weaving it into the texture of the dream. In accordance with the multiplicity of these constellations, external objective stimuli will be expressed more rarely or more frequently in the case of one person than in that of another. 
In my own case, since I am an excellent sleeper and obstinately refuse to allow myself to be disturbed during sleep on any pretext whatever, this intrusion of external causes of excitation into my dreams is very rare, whereas psychic motives apparently cause me to dream very easily. Indeed, I have noted only a single dream in which an objective, painful source of stimulation is demonstrable, and it will be highly instructive to see what effect the external stimulus had in this particular dream. I am riding a gray horse, at first timidly and awkwardly, as though I were merely carried along. Then I meet a colleague, P, also on horseback, and dressed in rough frieze. He is sitting erect in the saddle. He calls my attention to something, probably to the fact that I have a very bad seat. Now I begin to feel more and more at ease on the back of my highly intelligent horse. I sit more comfortably, and I find that I am quite at home up here. My saddle is a sort of pad which completely fills the space between the neck and the rump of the horse. I ride between two vans and just manage to clear them. After riding up the street for some distance, I turn round and wish to dismount, at first in front of a little open chapel which is built facing on to the street. Then I do really dismount in front of a chapel which stands near the first one. The hotel is in the same street. I might let the horse go there by itself, but I'd prefer to lead it thither. It seems as though I should be ashamed to arrive there on horseback. In front of the hotel there stands a page boy who shows me a note of mine, which has been found, and ridicules me on account of it. On the note is written, doubly underlined, eat nothing and then a second sentence, indistinct, something like, do not work. At the same time, a hazy idea that I am in a strange city in which I do not work. It will not at once be apparent that this dream originated under the influence, or rather under the compulsion, of a pain stimulus. The day before, however, I had suffered from boils, which made every movement a torture, and at last a boil had grown to the size of an apple at the root of the scrotum, and it had caused me the most intolerable pains at every step. A feverish lassitude, lack of appetite, and the hard work which I had nevertheless done during the day had conspired with the pain to upset me. I was not altogether in a condition to discharge my duties as a physician, but in view of the nature and the location of the malady, it was possible to imagine something else for which I was most of all unfit, namely writing. Now it is this very activity of writing into which I am plunged by the dream. It is the most energetic denial of the pain which imagination could conceive. As a matter of fact, I cannot ride. I do not dream of doing so. I never sat on a horse but once, and then without a saddle, and I did not like it. But in this dream, I ride as though I had no boil on the perineum, or rather I ride just because I want to have none. Probably being thus comforted, I did not feel anything of my pain during the first few hours of my sleep. Then the painful sensations made themselves felt and tried to wake me, whereupon the dream came and said to me soothingly, Go on sleeping, you are not going to wake, you have no boil, for you are riding on horseback, and with a boil just there no one could ride. And the dream was successful, the pain was stifled, and I went on sleeping. But the dream was not satisfied with suggesting away the boil by tenaciously holding fast to an idea incompatible with the malady, thus behaving like the hallucinatory insanity of a mother who has lost her child or of a merchant who has lost his fortune. In addition, the details of the sensation denied 
and of the image used to suppress it serve the dream also as a means to connect other material actually present in the mind with the situation in the dream and to give this material representation i am riding on a gray horse the color of the horse exactly corresponds with the pepper and salt suit in which i last saw my colleague p in the country i have been warned that highly seasoned food is the cause of boils and in any case it is preferable as an etiological explanation to sugar which might be thought of in connection with furunculosis my friend p likes to ride the high horse with me ever since he took my place in the treatment of a female patient in whose case i had performed great feats but who really like the horse in the story of the sunday equestrian led me wherever she wished thus the horse comes to be a symbolic representation of a lady patient in the dream it is highly intelligent i feel quite at home refers to the position which i occupied in the patient's household until i was replaced by my colleague p i thought you were safe in the saddle up there one of my few well-wishers among the eminent physicians of the city recently said to me with reference to the same household and it was a feat to practice psychotherapy for eight to ten hours a day while suffering such pain but i know that i cannot continue my peculiarly strenuous work for any length of time without perfect physical health and the dream is full of dismal allusions to the situation which would result if my illness continued the note such as neurasthenics carry and show to their doctors do not work do not eat on further interpretation i see that the dream activity has succeeded in finding its way from the wish situation of riding to some very early childish quarrels which must have occurred between myself and a nephew who is a year older than i and is now living in england it has also taken up elements from my journeys in italy the street in the dream is built up out of impressions of verona and siena a still deeper interpretation leads to sexual dream thoughts and i recall what the dream allusions to that beautiful country were supposed to mean in the dream of a female patient who had never been to italy parentheses to italy german colon gen italian equals genitals and parentheses at the same time there are references to the house in which i preceded my friend p as physician and to the place where the boil is located in another dream i was similarly successful in warding off a threatened disturbance of my sleep this time the threat came from a sensory stimulus it was only chance however that enabled me to discover the connection between the dream and the accidental dream stimulus and in this way to understand the dream one midsummer morning in a tyrolese mountain resort i woke with the knowledge that i had dreamed the pope is dead i was not able to interpret this short non-visual dream i could remember only one possible basis of the dream namely that shortly before this the newspapers had reported that his holiness was slightly indisposed but in the course of the morning my wife asked me did you hear the dreadful tolling of the church bells this morning i had no idea that i had heard it but now i understood my dream it was the reaction of my need for sleep to the noise by which the pious tyrolians were trying to wake me i avenged myself on them by the conclusion which formed the content of my dream and continued to sleep without any further interest in the tolling of the bells 
Among the dreams mentioned in the previous chapters, there are several which might serve as examples of the elaboration of so-called nerve stimuli. The dream of drinking in long drafts is such an example. Here the somatic stimulus seems to be the sole source of the dream, and the wish arising from the sensation, thirst, the only motive for dreaming. We find much the same thing in other simple dreams, where the somatic stimulus is able of itself to generate a wish. The dream of the sick woman who throws the cooling apparatus from her cheek at night is an instance of an unusual manner of reaching to a pain stimulus with a wish fulfillment. It seems as though the patient had temporarily succeeded in making herself analgesic and accompanied this by ascribing her pains to a stranger. My dream of the three Parsi is obviously a hunger dream, but it has contrived to shift the need for food right back to the child's longing for its mother's breast and to use a harmless desire as a mask for a more serious one that cannot venture to express itself so openly. In the dream of Count Thun, we were able to see by what paths an accidental physical need was brought into relation with the strongest, but also the most rigorously repressed impulses of the psychic life. And when, as in the case reported by Garnier, the first consul incorporates the sound of an exploding infernal machine into a dream of battle before it causes him to wake, the true purpose for which alone psychic activity concerns itself with sensations during sleep is revealed with unusual clarity. A young lawyer who is full of his first great bankruptcy case and falls asleep in the afternoon behaves just as the great Napoleon did. He dreams of a certain G. Reich in Husayatin, whose acquaintance he has made in connection with the bankruptcy case. But Husayatin forces itself upon his attention still further. He is obliged to wake only to hear his wife, who is suffering from bronchial catarrh, violently coughing. Let us compare the dream of Napoleon I, who incidentally was an excellent sleeper, with that of the sleepy student who was awakened by his landlady with the reminder that he had to go to the hospital, and who thereupon dreamt himself into a bed in the hospital, and then slept on, the underlying reasoning being as follows. If I am already in the hospital, I needn't get up to go there. This is obviously a convenience dream. The sleeper frankly admits to himself his motive in dreaming, but he thereby reveals one of the secrets of dreaming in general. In a certain sense, all dreams are convenience dreams. They serve the purpose of continuing to sleep instead of waking. The dream is the guardian of sleep, not its disturber. In another place, we shall have occasion to justify this conception in respect to the psychic factors that make for waking, but we can already demonstrate its applicability to the objective external stimuli. Either the mind does not concern itself at all with the causes of sensations during sleep, if it is able to carry this attitude through as against the intensity of the stimuli, and their significance, of which it is well aware, or it employs the dream to deny these stimuli, or thirdly, if it is obliged to recognize the stimuli, it seeks that interpretation of them which will represent the actual sensation as a component of a desired situation, which is compatible with sleep. The actual sensation is woven into the dream in order to deprive it of its reality. Napoleon is permitted to go on sleeping, if it is only a dream, memory of the thunder, of the guns at Arcol, which is trying to disturb him. The two sources from which I know of this dream do not entirely agree as to its content. 
the wish to sleep to which the conscious ego has adjusted itself and which together with the dream censorship and the secondary elaboration to be mentioned later represents the ego's contribution to the dream must thus always be taken into account as a motive of dream formation and every successful dream is a fulfillment of this wish the relation of this general constantly present and unvarying sleep wish to the other wishes of which now one and now another is fulfilled by the dream content will be the subject of later consideration in the wish to sleep we have discovered a motive capable of supplying the deficiency in the theory of strumpel and wound and of explaining the perversity and capriciousness of the interpretation of the external stimulus the correct interpretation of which the sleeping mind is perfectly capable would involve active interest and would require the sleeper to wake hence of those interpretations which are possible at all only such are admitted as are acceptable to the dictatorial censorship of the sleep wish the logic of dream situations would run for example it is the nightingale and not the lark for if it is the lark love's night is at an end from among the interpretations of the stimulus which are thus admissible that one is selected which can secure the best connection with the wish impulses that are lying in wait in the mind thus everything is definitely determined and nothing is left to caprice the misinterpretation is not an illusion but if you will an excuse here again as in substitution by displacement in the service of the dream censorship we have an act of deflection of the normal psychic procedure if the external nerve stimuli and the inner bodily stimuli are sufficiently intense to compel psychic attention they represent that is if they result in dreaming at all and not in waking a fixed point for dream formation a nucleus in the dream material for which an appropriate wish fulfillment is sought just as mediating ideas between two psychical dream stimuli are sought to this extent it is true of a number of dreams that the somatic element dictates the dream content in this extreme case even a wish that is not actually present may be aroused for the purpose of dream formation but the dream cannot do otherwise than represent a wish in some situation as fulfilled it is as it were confronted with the task of discovering what wish can be represented as fulfilled by the given sensation even if this given material is of a painful or disagreeable character yet it is not unserviceable for the purposes of dream formation the psychic life has at its disposal even wishes whose fulfillment evokes displeasure which seems a contradiction but becomes perfectly intelligible if we take into account the presence of two sorts of psychic instants and the censorship that subsists between them in the psychic life there exist as we have seen repressed wishes which belong to the first system and to whose fulfillment the second system is opposed we do not mean this in a historic sense that such wishes have once existed and have subsequently been destroyed the doctrine of repression which we need in the study of psychoneuroses asserts that such repressed wishes still exist but simultaneously with an inhibition which weighs them down language has hit upon the truth when it speaks of the suppression in parentheses sub dash pression or pushing under end parentheses of such impulses the psychic mechanism which enables such suppressed wishes to force their way to realization is retained in being and in working order 
But if it happens that such a suppressed wish is fulfilled, the vanquished inhibition of the second system, which is capable of consciousness, is then expressed as discomfort. And, in order to conclude this argument, if sensations of a disagreeable character which originate from somatic sources are present during sleep, this constellation is utilized by the dream activity to procure the fulfillment, with more or less maintenance of the censorship, of an otherwise suppressed wish. This state of affairs makes possible a certain number of anxiety dreams, while others of these dream formations, which are unfavorable to the wish theory, exhibit a different mechanism. For the anxiety in dreams may, of course, be of a psychoneurotic character, originating in psychosexual excitation, in which case the anxiety corresponds to repressed libido. Then this anxiety, like the whole anxiety dream, has the significance of a neurotic symptom, and we stand at the dividing line where the wish-fulfilling tendency of dreams is frustrated. But in other anxiety dreams, the feeling of anxiety comes from somatic sources, as in the case of persons suffering from pulmonary or cardiac trouble, with occasional difficulty in breathing and then it is used to help such strongly suppressed wishes to attain fulfillment in a dream, the dreaming of which, from psychic motives, would have resulted in the same release of anxiety. It is not difficult to reconcile these two apparently contradictory cases. When two psychic formations, an effective inclination and a conceptual content, are intimately connected, either one being actually present will evoke the other, even in a dream. Now the anxiety of somatic origin evokes the suppressed conceptual content. Now it is the released conceptual content, accompanied by sexual excitement, which causes the release of anxiety. In the one case, it may be said that a somatically determined affect is psychically interpreted. In the other case, all is of psychic origin, but the content which has been suppressed is easily replaced by a somatic interpretation which fits the anxiety. The difficulties which lie in the way of understanding all this have little to do with dreams. They are due to the fact that in discussing these points we are touching upon the problems of the development of anxiety and of repression. The general aggregate of bodily sensation must undoubtedly be included among the dominant dream stimuli of internal bodily origin. Not that it is capable of supplying the dream content, but it forces the dream thoughts to make a choice from the material destined to serve the purpose of representation in the dream content, inasmuch as it brings within easy reach that part of the material which is adapted to its own character, and holds the rest at a distance. Moreover, this general feeling which survives from the preceding day is, of course, connected with the psychic residues that are significant for the dream. Moreover, this feeling itself may be either maintained or overcome in the dream so that it may, if it is painful, veer around into its opposite. If the somatic sources of excitation during sleep, that is, the sensations of sleep, are not of unusual intensity, the part which they play in dream formation is, in my judgment, similar to that of those impressions of the day which are still recent but of no great significance. I mean that they are utilized for the dream formation if they are of such a kind that they can be united with the conceptual content of the psychic dream source, but not otherwise. They are treated as a cheap, ever-ready material which can be used whenever is needed, and not as valuable material which itself prescribes the manner in which it must be utilized. 
I might suggest the analogy of a connoisseur giving an artist a rare stone, a piece of onyx, for example, in order that it may be fashioned into a work of art. Here the size of the stone, its color, and its markings help to decide what head or what scene shall be represented. While if he is dealing with a uniform and abundant material such as marble or sandstone, the artist is guided only by the idea which takes shape in his mind. Only in this way, it seems to me, can we explain the fact that the dream content furnished by physical stimuli of somatic origin, which are not unusually accentuated, does not make its appearance in all dreams and every night. Perhaps an example which takes us back to the interpretation of dreams will best illustrate my meaning. One day I was trying to understand the significance of the sensation of being inhibited, of not being able to move from the spot, of not being able to get something done, etc., which occurs so frequently in dreams and is so closely allied to anxiety. That night I had the following dream. I am very incompletely dressed and I go from a flat on the ground floor up a flight of stairs to an upper story. In doing this, I jump up three stairs at a time and I am glad to find that I can mount the stairs so quickly. Suddenly I notice that a servant maid is coming down the stairs, that is, towards me. I am ashamed and try to hurry away, and now comes this feeling of being inhibited. I am glued to the stairs and cannot move from the spot. Analysis. The situation of the dream is taken from an everyday reality. In a house in Vienna, I have two apartments which are connected only by the main staircase. My consultation rooms and my study are on the raised ground floor, and my living rooms are on the first floor. Late at night, when I have finished my work downstairs, I go upstairs to my bedroom. On the evening before the dream, I had actually gone this short distance with my garments in disarray. That is, I had taken off my collar, tie, and cuffs. But in the dream, this had changed into a more advanced, but, as usual, indefinite degree of undress. It is a habit of mine to run up two or three steps at a time. Moreover, there was a wish fulfillment recognized even in the dream, for the ease with which I run upstairs reassures me as to the condition of my heart. Further, the manner in which I run upstairs is an effective contrast to the sensation of being inhibited which occurs in the second half of the dream. It shows me, what needed no proof, that dreams have no difficulty in representing motor actions fully and completely carried out. Think, for example, of flying in dreams. But the stairs up which I go are not those of my own house. At first I do not recognize them. Only the person coming towards me informs me of their whereabouts. This woman is the maid of an old lady whom I visit twice daily in order to give her hypodermic injections. The stairs, too, are precisely similar to those which I have to climb twice a day in this old lady's house. How do these stairs and the woman get into my dream? The shame of not being fully dressed is undoubtedly of a sexual character. The servant of whom I dream is older than I, surly and by no means attractive. These questions remind me of the following incident. When I pay my morning visit at this house, I am usually seized with a desire to clear my throat. The sputum falls on the stairs. There is no spittoon on either of the two floors, and I consider that the stairs should be kept clean, not at my expense, but rather by the provision of a spittoon. The housekeeper, another elderly, curmudgeonly person, but, as I willingly admit, a woman of cleanly instincts, takes a different view of the matter. She lies in wait for me to see whether I shall take the liberty referred to, and if she sees that I do, I can distinctly hear her growl. 
For days thereafter, when we meet, she refuses to greet me with the customary signs of respect. On the day before the dream, the housekeeper's attitude was reinforced by that of the maid. I had just furnished my usual hurried visit to the patient when the servant confronted me in the anteroom, observing, You might as well have wiped your shoes today, doctor, before you came into the room. The red carpet is all dirty again from your feet. This is the only justification for the appearance of the stairs and the maid in my dream. Between my leaping upstairs and my spitting on the stairs, there is an intimate connection. Pharyngitis and cardiac troubles are both supposed to be punishments for the vice of smoking, on account of which vice my own housekeeper does not credit me with excessive tidiness, so that my reputation suffers in both the houses, which my dream fuses into one. I must postpone the further interpretation of this dream until I can indicate the origin of the typical dream of being incompletely clothed. In the meantime, as a provisional deduction from the dream just related, I note that the dream sensation of inhibited movement is always aroused at a point where a certain connection requires it. A peculiar condition of my motor system during sleep cannot be responsible for this dream content, since a moment earlier I found myself, as though in confirmation of this fact, skipping lightly up the stairs. End of section 19. Recording by Judith Parker, drjudithparker.com.